Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 35, verses 1 through 7. God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Let us Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. So word of the Lord, you may be seated. We've been in this series for uh, quite a while right now. We call it patriarchs. The word patriarchy is a word that becomes popular every now and again. People are like, we're living in a patriarchy, and they don't really know what they're talking about because a patriarchy would be more of a tribal kind of government in which the father, the oldest male, um, or the one who has the most prestige anyway, would be the one who leads. Now, the patriarchs in the Bible are known as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons. We've kind of gone from Jacob, we're still kind of with Jacob, but we're transitioning into his 12 sons here. But truly, there's only one patriarch. There's only one who is in control. Patriarchy means the rule of the fathers. And it's the heavenly father who's the one in control. Jacob has found out a very difficult lesson in chapter 34, that when God says, come back, he really means come back. Not to open that up to interpretation, but to go straight to Bethel. Chapter 34 was a very difficult chapter. There's nobody who acts honorably, nobody who acts good. Actually, it's horrific what happens. In chapter 34, that is the chapter in which uh, their sister is violated and the two brothers, the two, it's like third and second oldest brother, decide to take matters into their own hand. They deceive the neighbors and they tell them to, they must, every male amongst them must be circumcised. And they wait till the, until the third day when they become sore and they kill them all. It's a very dark chapter. And I was just reminded this morning that J. J. Vernon McGee said, you don't get chapter 35 though without chapter 34. Because in chapter 35, it's the return to Bethel. This morning, when I was, uh, Preaching to my cats, I do that. I do kind of a command performance. I, 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 I preach the message and I, and I hear from the Lord what he wants to tell me. My cats are there. And um, I felt this impression from the Lord um, as I was reading this, a, a, a more clear understanding of what's happening in chapter 35. Is 35 is in a revival. It's the first revival. Jacob had experiences with God far before this. In fact, he grew up in a godly home. 
He grew up in a godly home. He leaves and he goes to um, where his uncle's at because he's fleeing his own bad decisions. It's like, it's like that old meme with Scooby-Doo. It's like, well, if it isn't my own bad decisions. And then he spends 20 years away. And as he's coming back, as he's coming back, he has this moment with God where he wrestles literally with the pre-incarnate son of God, Jesus Christ himself. But before that, actually, as he was going to the land of his uncle, he stops in a place that he'll call Bethel. Bethel means house of God. And there he has a dream. In his dream, he sees the stairway to heaven and ascending and descending on the stairway are angels and God sits above this. And after he wakes up, he realized, okay, God was in this place and I didn't know it. And he says, if God will do the things he told me in the dream, then he'll be my God. So he had all these experiences with God. And then as he's coming back, he decides instead of going straight to the house of God, that's Bethel, he's going to make a side trip. It wasn't going to be a side trip. He built a house. He was planning on staying there, a place called Shechem. Shechem, it's just like every other city in the ancient world. It is licentious. It is a city of sin. It's a city that his daughter is just walking alone and she gets raped. He had stayed there so very long. And then his, his sons decide they're going to take justice into their own hands and kill everyone. So now he has to leave. He has to leave. He has to go back to Bethel. It's a story of revival. We use that term a lot in, 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 our, in, our, in our time in church history. Most times what we call revivals really are just a, a bit of a drawing closer to the Lord, which is fantastic, by the way. But true revival it's repentance. It's coming back to the Lord, being revived. Something that was alive, that is dying, needs to be revived. And Jacob here, he is experiencing personal revival and revival in his, in his, amongst his family. I mentioned at Lake last week that God had told Jacob to return to the tents of his father. It was not open to interpretation. In fact, almost every commentator, every scholar has said that the intention was him to return to Bethel, not to Shechem. Bethel means house of God. Not that God is confined to one geographical location, but it is a place that Jacob had met with God. And we all have our own Bethels. Those places that we go to in our hearts that are special to us. When explaining heaven to some teenagers, um, junior hires in my last church, I was talking about somewhat a complexity because I think the real problem is we used to tell people, do you want to go to heaven? Everyone wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to burn in hell. That's such a silly question. The question is, do you want God to be there? So I was talking to him. I was telling him about, okay, what does heaven really mean? It's not just simply some celestial city that's all gated community and you get your own place. What's the heart of heaven? The heart of heaven is I get to be with my savior. I get to be with my God. Because here's the thing, like in some time in the future, there will be a bodily resurrection of the dead. Now that sounds weird saying in churches, because even though every Orthodox church believes in the resurrection, in fact, you can't read the New Testament without believing in a bodily resurrection of the dead. Yet very few churches want to preach on that. We just want to preach on what happens right now. But for the early church, that was their great hope was for a bodily resurrection of the dead to the point that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. So I was telling them, your goal shouldn't be heaven. Your goal should be Christ. 
And one of my students, he said, it's such a great, insightful thing. You've heard the phrase before, home is where the heart is. He was saying, home is where God is. And that's what Jacob, when Jacob comes back to Bethel, um, he renames it, he renames it again, and he calls it El Bethel, God of the house of God. Man, I wish we as believers could understand this right here, that worshiping the things of God is still idolatry. Worshiping the things of God is still idolatry if you're not worshiping the God of the things. See, we, can, we, we, had, we had such an um, explosion in Christian music when I was growing up. There's all different kinds. And now we have a big multi-million dollar industry around praise and worship music. And I wonder, are we worshiping the music of the Lord instead of the Lord of the music? Do we need to call it the God, the God of these things? Because our heart gets sidetracked so often. And Jacob knew, yes, you can, ju- you can make such an idol out of this place. And you know something, what's crazy about Bethel? Bethel, once again, the place where he met with God in Israel's history, it becomes a place where they worship other gods, a prime place of idolatry. So there's an understanding that Bethel is really not simply a geographical location. It's a place in our heart where we meet with God. Now, certain places remind us of that. I know when I go to North Dakota, if I go to that camp I grew up in, I'm reminded of those times where I met with God or to my old church or to things like this. But really, it's a place in my heart that I need to go and I need to go back because I sometimes spend too long in Shechem. I spend too long in this world and I need to get out of that pattern. This This is a chapter about returning to worship, returning to the heart of worship. We get sidetracked a lot. Probably not as bad as Jacob. I hope not as bad as Jacob. But we make a real mess of things when we are left to our own devices. The wonderful thing about our divine patriarchy, our divine father, our heavenly father, is that he has given us the key to the door of intimacy with him. And that is worship. But what is that? Most of us see worship as the singing portion of our service. We'll say the fast songs are praise, the slow songs are worship, but that's not what worship is. That's a method of worship. It is a tool to worship is singing, but that's not what worship is. In the Old Testament, if you were to talk to somebody about worship, they would have thought about the sacrifices they did at the temple. In fact, when God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go out into the wilderness to worship him, it was to make sacrifices to him. That would be their idea of worship. First, it would have been the sacrifices. Second, it would have been singing. And, 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 and then you go through the different rituals. But that's not worship either. That's just a method of us being able to worship. It is the form of worship. There are books and books about this topic, but the Bible actually tells us what worship is, what the heart of worship is. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, in some of your translations, acceptable act of worship. Do not conform to the the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. Today, this evening anyway, at nightfall, it is Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And 
The Jewish people who have not heard that Messiah has come, they will go through the motions, even though they have no temple. The thing about the Day of Atonement, they had all these sacrifices, yet they have no place to sacrifice anymore. We also don't have a place to sacrifice anymore. And as New Testament believers in the early church, that was a real concern. They're like, okay, so we're in Christ. What do we do with the sacrifice? Because we have no more sacrifices to make. Christ is the final sacrifice. And Paul says, you are a living sacrifice. This is what worship is. It's when we take the things that are precious to us and we give them over to the Lord. Now he gives us a lot of these things back, but when it comes to sin, those kinds of things, he's already paid for them by his blood and we give them to the Lord. That's what, that's what worship is. And if you, no matter what activity you're engaged in, if you come away from it unchanged, that's not worship. Because you can't sacrifice something and for it to be exactly the same. We are this living sacrifice in that not conforming to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. When Jacob came to Bethel, he had made sacrifices. He had made an altar and he will make an altar and sacrifices again. Our altar is really everywhere. And the action of worship is not as important as the heart of worship. God is calling his worshipers back to himself, just as he's calling Jacob in this chapter back to Bethel. He desires worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth, who will take the sinful nature and crucify its passions. Worship is an action, but it is also a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle it is in everything we do. If we do, it is unto the Lord. If we are not in constant pursuit of our heavenly father, we'll be amazed at how quickly we drift away from him. There is a old, uh, old hymn, Come Thou Fount. Maybe you've heard it. Come thou fount of every blessing to my knees to hear thy praise. The man who wrote that is, uh, I wrote it down because I can never remember, Robert Robertson. He had penned the words, let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. A widely told but unverified story is of Robert being in a stagecoach. And the woman next to him says, hey, do you know this song? She starts humming. She starts humming, come thou fount. And he turns to her and he says, madam, I am the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feeling I had then. C.H. Spurgeon said, a revival of old memories is often most useful to us, especially to revive the memory of our conversion, the memory of the love of our espousal when we went after the Lord into the wilderness and were quite satisfied to be denied and disowned of all so long as we might dwell near to him, that memory is right good for us. Do you remember what it was like when the Lord first called you by your name? when the Lord saved you. Now, some of you, maybe you've been in church so long, you can't even remember a time you weren't with the Lord. Great. But do you remember the time you felt close to the Lord? When things like recognition, reputation, just 
everything in this life meant so little to you, but the one thing you loved, the one thing you are passionate about was to know him above all things. This last week, I was doing a longer run and I get around mile 10 and I'm praying and I'm having this moment with the Lord and I'm telling the Lord, I would suffer the loss of everything other than intimacy with you. Because all I really want, it's all I really need is to know you. Because I was was meditating on these verses right here and I'm thinking, I bet you that's what Jacob remembered. He's called me Israel. There was a time where I didn't know God was here, but he was And I saw that ladder. I saw that stairway to heaven. In the New Testament, Jesus says he's the stairway to heaven. That they were ascending and descending on the son of man. And God is calling his church back to fellowship with him. Back to worship with him. There's so many times I'm counseling somebody and I'm telling them, yes, you need to get back to that intimacy with the Lord. And they're basically, they're so far into Shechem. They're like, what is it? What is that? God has to do something so dramatic in their life. They can't stay in Shechem anymore, just like Jacob here. And they have to go back to the things they once knew, just like what the Lord had told the church in Ephesus, that they had forgotten their first love. They had to return. Jacob's story sounds somewhat familiar. If you strip it down, it sounds like many, many Christians in America who grow up in a God-fearing home, who have an encounter with God when they're younger, They walk with God, they walk away from God, they walk back to God, they have kids, and now they're going back to the house of God. No one's relationship with God, I don't say this as criticism, if that's you, that's fine. Thank you, Jesus. We all have different stories in our walk with God. I'll say this though, Joseph's relationship with God was always so much stronger than Jacob's because he didn't do that. Because whether he was in a prison cell, whether he was a slave, or whether he was the governor of Egypt, he walked with the Lord. Better late than never, however, as Jacob walks back to the house of God, Bethel. The important thing isn't how many times you've fallen away, it's how many times you let the Lord pick you back up. He is still the one who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Shechem was a mistake. The toll was considerable and they, are, and they are now a stink in the noses of all who are around them. Jacob has tried doing things his way and now, and now God will once again call him back to worship. In verses one through four, he prepares for worship. Not just him, but him and his family. In two, uh, my second point here is going back to worship, going back to the house of God, back to Bethel, verses five through 15. And the third one, worship and grief. None of us are exempt from the sufferings of this life even when we're walking with the Lord. Let's start with the first one right here, preparing to worship. Do you ever consider preparing to worship? I think some people, they're like, oh, your church was so dry. Did you even prepare for worship? He prepares for worship. He is told in verse one, and God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. I love the patience of the Lord. Not just here. I love the patience of the Lord in my own life. Do you feel that? Do you, do you live that? You're like, God told you something. You see something very clearly in the scripture. You did something else. But God is still patiently waiting. Jacob is in another tight spot. 
and God doesn't rub his nose in it and make him uh, rub his nose in it. He just tells him, return to Bethel. When he met with him in the, where God met with Jacob in the first place, make an altar to the God who appeared to you. Our altars, not physical ones. They're the ones that are in our heart. That's where we worship God from. This is a call to flee worldliness, to get away from these people, to go to where he'd been told to go in the first place. Barnhouse, Donald Barnhouse says, the only cure for worldliness is to separate it, to, to be separate from it. Jacob had to flee Shechem, leave the worldliness of his day and go back to the house of God. Last week I said, you don't really have a choice. You live in this world and you have to interact in this world, but you do have a choice of how much the world gets inside of you, inside of your house. How much of the world comes into your house is your choice. The best choices we make is to flee temptation. And that's so important. I know um, I used to lead Celebrate Recovery in my last church, help lead it. I used to take kids to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was a residential counselor. And the one thing I thought was so insightful, really from God himself, was this. Don't go back to the places of temptation thinking you're strong enough. If God has provided a way out under it, Take the way. Don't, don't stay in the place of temptation. Flee from it. Jacob, whether he likes it or not, he needs to get out of there because what they've done to the neighbors, it is spreading around. So in verse two, he's been told, so Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. This is so much more than like, okay, we need to get ready for church. Revival isn't happening in America because we don't do this right here. Because we just want a lot of feelings. We want a lot of spectacle, but we don't want repentance and we don't want to change our garments. Get rid of the idols. They have picked up more than just the styling of clothing that's in Shechem. They have picked up their gods. And you know, the first of Jacob's family was his beloved wife, Rachel, who brought the idols into the house. Remember his father-in-law, her dad, Laban? He chases them down. He says, hey, who took my household gods? And Rachel is like, I got to go somewhere real quick. And she finds those household gods. She sits on them. And Jacob says, hey, the person who, told, who took them, they're going to be put to death. And you can imagine Rachel's like cringing face, like, uh. She hides them. She's the one who brought the idols into the home. Jacob, without being told, knows that God desires worship and for his worshipers to worship him alone. If they're going back to Bethel, they need to leave their idols behind. Believers throughout the centuries make this mistake as well. Make the, make the opposite, make a mistake of thinking that they can hold on to their idols and still worship God. In the Old Testament, they literally did this. They brought idols into the house of God. They'd still worship. There was never a time in Israel's history they didn't, quote unquote, worship Yahweh. But there was many times they brought idols into the house of God. Their affections for the Lord were carried away. In the American church today, we want to worship so many masters all at the same time. You have pastors for generations now who've preached revival, but not repentance, not getting rid of your idols. It's why churches, they focus on entertainment so much to this day. Barbie sermons have the youth pastor dress up like Boba Fett and for three hours play the same chorus because we need to simulate the Holy Spirit without the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. 
without making a sacrifice of praise. You don't feel close to God. Maybe it's because you are so loaded down with idols and the Lord will not look at anything else until those idols are gone. He tells them to change their clothes. I was talking with Pastor Dennis Niles, who's over at Humboldt. He's the founding pastor of this church. And we were talking, he was asking me a question about like, okay, why are so many young pastors uh, failing or doing poorly? And we talk about a lot of things. So this is not the only thing that I'm going to share with you. And I said, okay, because he was telling me this story about when he was in the military and he'd go to different bases and they would do their inspections and there'd be some high up colonel or something with him. And they'd go to a base in which the men there, they were not dressed appropriately. They weren't, you know, they're just looking shabby. And the higher up would tell him, hey, the, the leader of this base, I want you to tell him this. I want you to tell him, we're going to give him an opportunity to excel. So Pastor Niles, he hears that and he knows exactly what that means. So he talks with the sergeant of the base and he says, you're in major trouble. The colonel is furious because that's what that means. He's giving you one last chance. When we do inspections next time and your men are not ready, you know, at the very least you get demoted, Right. So he's telling me this. I said, you know, the reason why so many young pastors are not doing very well is because, I mean, one of the things is that they don't, they don't dress right. And I know this is going to sound somewhat weird because we don't do a suit and tie here. I'm in, you know, this kind of clothes right here. Um, business, business casual. I don't know how you put it. And me and him were sitting there. I was like, you, you know, we're just here on a normal day. We're having coffee together. Both of us, we're not in, we're, we're in slacks. We're in a collared shirt because we want to comport ourselves as professionals and we teach people how to treat us, right? And this is one of the things that Paul told Timothy, do not let anyone look down on you for your youth. He doesn't tell them, hey, read this letter to the people in your church who are giving you a hard time not to look down on you because you are young. Don't let them look down on you because you are young. Comport yourself in a way worthy of your calling. Jacob tells the people, change their clothes. Their clothes were dirty. Their clothes were of the world. Change your clothes. Now, elsewhere in the scriptures, it takes this very metaphorical of changing our clothes, putting on the new person that God has called us to be. In Jude chapter, it's only one chapter, verse 23, it tells us to hate even the garment that touches the flesh. Why don't we have revival in America? Why don't we have, the, the, the whole Asbury thing was awesome. I had a lot of hopes for it. We didn't see revival flow into America because we didn't hear repentance. No, come to God, stay in your same clothes, stay with your old gods. Who cares? Change your clothes. Put on the new self. Take off the old self with all of its passions and all of its sins. Jacob needed to do this himself. He keeps going by Jacob. And when God meets with him next, he tells him your name is no longer Jacob. But even after that, he keeps saying his name is Jacob. It's Israel. I don't care what you wear on a Sunday morning, by the way. So if you're like, you're feeling like all kinds of awkward, don't worry about that. I worry about your spiritual clothes. The metaphor of clean clothes versus dirty is a common one in the scriptures. Jacob may have only been thinking of how you should look when you meet someone important. Other times God uses this metaphor for a person's heart. In Jude, verse 23, have Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others. Show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Having a hard time in worship or prayer. Feel like you're just going through the motions. 
purify yourselves and change your garments. In 1 John 1, 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How most believers live, you could just cross out that last bit. Because I'll talk to somebody who was trapped maybe in a pretty serious sin that the Lord has saved them from, has cleansed them from. And they'll talk about this and they have such shame with it. And I'll share this verse with them and I'll ask them, okay, have you confessed it and confess in the scripture from the actual Koine Greek, homo logos, same word, meaning have you told God and you've used the same words as God, not I was mistaken, I was misled. No, I have sinned before God and man. Have you done that? And they're like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Almost without fail, people will say, yes, I've absolutely done that. I've gone to God. I've gone to the people that I've offended. I'm like, that's awesome. Do you believe that God has forgiven you? Absolutely. Do you believe that God has cleansed you from your unrighteousness? Almost without fail, people say, no. Say, I can believe that God can forgive me. I can't forgive myself for what I did. That sounds humble, but it's not. It's unbelief. It's unbelief that the blood of Christ is not enough to cleanse us from unrighteousness, but it is. And we can live as though we have never sinned because the blood of Christ cleanses us. Speaking of old hymns, there's the hymn, um, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. I think for the believer, it's very hard for us to believe, yes, I really am cleansed before God. I really am cleansed before God. The world, my sinful nature, the devil himself can remind me of these things. But if God says you are cleansed, you truly are cleansed. That's why in 1 John says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. They give over their idols in verses three and four. They give over their idols, but they do more than that. See, see the effect of godly leadership. Men, husbands, see the effect of godly leadership in your home. Verse three, then let us go, let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may go there. Um, so I go, so I may make an altar to the God who answered me in the day of my distress that has been with me wherever I have gone. Verse four, so they gave, J gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the tenebra tree that was near Shechem. They go above and beyond. They don't just give them the idols. They give them these earrings. Now, the earrings, there's some debate on this, whether or not it was an earring in their ear or in the idol's ear. Both would have been done. Both would have had a connection to the occult within the Canaanite religions. So we're not exactly sure. I think it is probably a, a ring in the, in the ear of the idol itself. Now, it would probably would have been gold or a precious metal. They could have kept that and they would have had some spending money wherever they went. But they took their cue from their leader that this is important that we cannot even let any bit of the old life remain. Our time in Shechem needs to be at an end. They give over the idols and some leadership matters. They live in the land of pagans and they were quickly becoming pagans. In the last chapter, there was no mention of God at all. But in this chapter, God is mentioned 10 times and 11 more in the names that are used. So what's the difference? The difference is this, godly leadership. They not only give up the idols, but the rings that they had put in those idols' ears. 
They are preparing to go to the place of worship. They're preparing to worship. Do you prepare to worship? I don't think many people do. I think for many people, even for their personal worship time, they just go straight into their list of wants, like get God as Santa Claus. They go straight into the music. At some point, we do need to ask ourselves, are we worshiping, are we worshiping the Lord of the music or the music of the Lord? I talk about that real, real bit because I think there, if there's a big sin in modern day evangelicalism, it's our obsession with entertainment within. I, I, I felt this so strongly when I used to live in Sioux Falls because Sioux Falls had a huge, huge free music festival called Life Light. And I've been to Christian concerts before, but at Life Light, I was noticing something. Everybody there is acting just like a secular concert. Oh, oh, the, the bass player touched me. I'm never washing this arm. I've been listening to this podcast by John Cooper, the lead singer of Skillet. And he was talking about this. And uh, he's talking about how all these people that he was um, touring with had fallen away from the Lord. And the other person he was talking with, um, uh, Alicia Childers from Zoe Girl, talked about how like, you know, all these secular companies own a lot of these Christian music, um, music labels. And they couldn't care less about worship music. It's about the money. And then we see, as time goes on, these people wanting to hold on to relevance. So they're coming out as all kinds of things, denying God himself. When I talk about preparing for worship, I don't mean getting ready for music, but I mean preparing our hearts to receive from the Lord. Before you come here on a Sunday morning, I hope you're getting dressed. I have all of you are. Thank you. Um, But are you getting dressed in your spiritual clothes as well? Taking off the old self, throwing away the idols. God's calling his people back to true worship and that demands repentance of his people. In Isaiah chapter one, we see how far these people have fallen. The people of God have fallen. In Isaiah chapter one, I was hearing Steve Lawson this week. I've heard David Wilkerson, Leonard Nate Ravenhill had said, this sounds so much like the church in America. In Isaiah chapter one, verses 12 and 13. When you come to appear before me, who has, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incest is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. This last Friday, I was at the feed mill and I I type up my sermons normally on Thursday, but it was Friday this week. And I got to this point and I I told myself, be ready. This might just be the end of your sermon. You're going to have to finish it next week. So it might be the end of the sermon. I don't know. God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Galatians chapter three, a man reaps what he sows. And judgment starts at the house of God. This last couple of years, I mean, we could name off all these pastors who've fallen, all these Christian celebrities. I mean, Ravi Zacharias, I did not see that coming. But God will not be mocked. Carl Lentz of Hillsong, New York, was found to have multiple affairs. He's already back in the ministry as though nothing happened. And we see so many of these things. And it is, it is, it is sad, but you know, honestly, it's God purifying his church as well because he will not endure iniquity in the house of God. There's a point of time where somebody may get away from it, but God will come back because as he purifies his house, it will be revealed. Everything done in the dark will be revealed 
Today is the day of repentance. Repent now before God has to show to the light. David Wilkerson preached on this, on this from Isaiah chapter one. And you can find it on YouTube today. I played it for Sunday school one time called The Reproach of the Psalm Assembly. And here's this man of God, by the way, David Wilkerson, he's the founder of Teen Challenge. There was a movie in the 80s that had the guy from Chips and Pat Boone in it, Eric Estrada. And in it, it was the, uh, it was the real life story of David Wilkerson who goes to New York and he's this straight laced guy and he's telling these, these gang members, Jesus loves you. And one of the je- gang members takes out his switchblade and his book's called The Cross and the Switchblade. And he tells him he's going to cut him up. And he tells him you can cut me into a thousand pieces and every piece will tell you that Jesus loves you all the louder. So David Wilkerson is not some fuddy-duddy, religious zealot, um, legalistic man. He actually had this church in New York City that was very, very successful. And he was, he was watching a conference that was all about glorifying money, overlooking sin, and so many things in churches. And he was so grieved with the Lord because of the reproach of this solemn assembly that God will not endure iniquity in his church. There may be a period of time where people think they're getting away with it, but he will not endure iniquity in his church or in his people, folks. And if we want revival in our life, in our families, it starts with us. Fathers in this church, men in this church, it starts with you as the head of your household, as the priest of your house. But make no mistake, every single one of us, this is on us to give over our idols and to put on the new clothes. David Wilkerson was the founder of Teen Challenge and pastor of a church in New York City. In that sermon he, that he called the reproach of the solemn assembly, his explanation of those verses and it's applied, and actually he applies it to the assemblies of God itself. We're an assembly of God church in case you're wondering. He's talking about this rot that has made its way. And you see, uh, you know, in David Wilkerson's day, he talked about, you know, a hatred of reproof a love of entertainment. When I listen to this today as a pastor, I'm like, you naive man, you have no clue. Because in my day, pastors dress up in clown outfits and make a mockery of the house of God. In my day, you've got a pastor of a mega church like Andy Stanley, who has said to unhitch from the Old Testament, to not talk about what the Bible says, in my day, the reproach of the solemn assembly is so thick, it's hard to even comprehend. And we want our revival. We just don't want to give up our idols and we don't want to change our clothes. But as I'm preaching this to you today, from Isaiah, from, sorry, from Genesis 35, what they are doing in the physical is what we need to do in our, in our very hearts. To give up these gods, to give up those things. What's a God in your life? I'm assuming that you probably don't have statues to Zeus and Aphrodite in your house. If you do, that's weird. You probably should get rid of them. Um, But for us, what, what the gods are, it's anything that takes our affection away from the Lord. I think the way the Lord proves something's an idol in our life is we get it taken away or we get a pause on that thing. And then all of a sudden we become angry with God over it. Maybe it's a job. Maybe it's a a car that gets busted up. Like your kid gets into a car accident and you're like, is the car okay? 
you know, you're like Cameron's dad from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And then we realize, okay, is this, is this just something that I enjoy or has it become my joy? Anything that's become my joy is a God in my life and God is not going to overlook that. He wants it out because he wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. He is purifying his church because he cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You know, actually, I am, I'm going to end it here. Um, Josh, if you want to come up at this time, worship team. I think it is incredibly appropriate. I did not realize today was Yom Kippur, by the way. Seems like I'm ready for it. I'm not. I had to print out something real quick. It was in my, it was in my, uh, it was in my calendar. Um, and then, but I didn't see it there. Somebody had posted something. And the wonderful thing about remembering these feasts from the Old Testament is how Christ has fulfilled these things. How that we can come to the throne of grace with confidence. We can lay down our burdens and pick up his yoke for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. They had done all these things and they still do these things today. In fact, today they read from the book of Jonah um, during the day of atonement, a book that reminds us that God saves, that even in our thick headedness, he saves us like he saved his prophet Jonah, but also he saves those in any circumstance and he calls us back to fellowship with him, to deep connection with him. Worship team's going to lead us in our final song. It's our moment to reflect on the, on the message. And maybe today you're doing really good. Fantastic. I hope you are greatly encouraged. I think the, the, big, the big thing for us, whether or not we really are doing good or if maybe we're in a place of pride, is that you heard my message today and you were super bored in a place of pride. Because if you really are doing good, this should make you excited. Yes, God's taken away my idols. I've put on the new self day to day, crucifying the old self and its passions. That's amazing. I think when we're like, oh, I've already heard this stuff, blah, 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 religious things. We're in a place of pride. And we have so many idols in our life that we can't hear the sweet music of the Lord. And C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. It's about one demon speaking to another demon on how basically to mess this guy who becomes a Christian. And he says, the, the great, and I'm not, this is not a quote, but the great purpose of hell is to fill the universe with noise so that no one can hear the sm still small voice anymore. So nobody can hear the music of heaven.